Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Jonathan Davis. Jonathan is a British author, editor, and a journalist specializing in finance. He was a senior business journalist at the Sunday Telegraph, The Times, and The Economist before taking a master's degree in management at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where in preparation for his thesis, he met and studied the methods of Warren Buffett. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'm very delighted to have this uh, opportunity to join you. It's great to have you on the show. Just to get a bit of background about yourself, you gained a master's degree in history and you went from that to journalism and then to finance. Could you just tell us a bit about that journey? Uh, absolutely. Uh, a lot of it is uh, serendipity and chance, of course. Um, I was a, trained as a journalist, a graduate trainee in those early days. Many years ago, you had to go and work on a local newspaper in order to become a, a journalist. Uh, I was indentured uh, for two and a half years and worked on local papers in Durham and Oxford. And then um, it was this was during the winter of discontent, a long, long time ago, long oh, before your... 73. Your, so no, this is 78, 79. Oh, 79, sorry, yeah. The Callaghan government. And uh, by, by mischance, uh, I was on strike for about half the period of my indentures. In uh, <laughs> it was a closed shop. And uh, uh, in those days, I mean, hard to believe now. Uh, and I didn't find that very comfortable at all. Uh, and so anyway, I, I took the first job I could get on a national newspaper, and that was in the Sunday Telegraph in the city office. Um, I knew nothing about the stock market or finance or anything at that stage. But it so was you're well qualified then, basically. Well, why, did, why didn't you go into central banking, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, in those days, uh, I probably, um, you know, I knew the right people, but I didn't quite know the right right people, if you know what I mean. Otherwise, <laughs> I, I'd have done that. But, uh, Anyway, so later on, I kind of uh, I did a bit of retro education uh, after I'd done business uh, finance journalism for a while on national newspapers. I worked on the Times and the Economist and and, and various excellent publications. Uh, but then I decided I better go and learn something about what I was writing about, and I went off to MIT, which was really the formative phase of my career, if you like, and um, spent a year there studying finance and investment and um, meeting and writing about. Warren Buffett in the days before he uh, before he was a global superstar, he was just a kind of megastar at that stage. And since then, I've uh, sort of done a mixture of uh, writing, publishing, and investment. Uh, you know, professional investment work. I'm a qualified professional investor now, um, but uh, in a way, that doesn't make it easier to write about uh, finance and investment in a funny sort of way. Uh, being being qualified to do so, you know, the great virtue of journalism is the is the ability to um, you know, kind of expose the, uh, uh, if you like, the kind of hidden truths of the world. And that's not always e easy to do if you're if you're actually part of the system. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of questions about Warren Buffett that Tim's got for you. But if he, he hasn't, I'll have a few. Okay. Well, um, the great thing about Buffett, I mean, everybody now is a Buffett sort of, or everybody has become a Buffett fan, and now everybody's getting a bit of um, more sceptical about the, the guy. I mean, he is 88 or whatever he is now. And um you know, the Berkshire Hathaway, his company is uh, is is becoming more and more like a like an index fund in a funny sort of way. Um, but you know, he is a remarkable individual, and I don't think anybody can take away from him the fact that uh, his record has been outstanding until until recently. And you know, he just talks a lot of common sense, and that's I think the thing which he'll be most remembered is his ability to you know put um, simple propositions about the art of investing into uh, into language uh, that people can understand. 
How much of his success do you think is down to just the fact that the markets have been going up since he started investing? Well, uh, yes, it's often said that, um, and you know, I've often said it too, that, that you know, the greatest secret of becoming a great investor is to live for a long time. <laughs> eventually, uh, eventually, you know, patient uh, investing produces fantastic results over time. We all know that, you know, the stock market goes up over time, or at least has done historically for a long time, but there are violent periods when it goes down. So yes, yeah. long, longevity is a lot part of, of it's one part of what he's done. But no, I don't think you can take away from the fact that his performance has been uh, exceptional. There was a very um, interesting academic study done into his performance, uh, which is updated regularly. I, I'd recommend it. It's called Buffett's Alpha, if and you can find it if you plow through um, kind of academic uh, papers. And basically, what it says is that he's done what he said he was going to do. Uh, he's a very he's structured his business very well. So. You know, he has some implied leverage that works very well, and he just sticks to a very small part of the, the stock market, the one that he understands where people have, you know, long-term sustainable competitive edges, high returns on capital, uh, and that will produce fantastic results if you've got the discipline to stick with it over a long period of time. But part of that is that obviously he has to hold his nerve as the market's going down. So I think it's fair to say we could say, of course, he's invested during a, a massive bull market, the biggest in history. But it's holding your investments when everything's going down. And I think him and Charlie, his sidekick, Charlie Munger, Charlie Munger doesn't get as much praise as he should, in my view. I don't know what you what you think about that. But Charlie, Charlie Munger's a super smart guy. In some ways, I've got more respect for him than Warren Buffett. Right. Well, you're absolutely right. He is a super smart guy. Uh, I've met him as well. Uh, and he's extraordinary. He's a sort of polymath. Uh, extraordinarily well-read, uh, you know, extraordinarily uh, sensitive uh, and intelligent human being. Somewhat on the arrogant side, you have to say. Really, <laughs> he, he likes to dispense. He likes to dispense his wisdom in a in a in a fairly forthright way. Um, I think that's fair to say. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's and Buffett himself would credit says he credits uh, Charlie Munger with um, you know the biggest secret of his success, which was when he's when he went from being a kind of you know cigar butt. Uh, investor looking for incredibly dirt cheap uh, individual stocks to um, you know buying high quality businesses at fair prices is how he put it and uh, that's what he's done since he um, you know since Buffett uh, since Parker Hathaway um, you know became a significant player in the in the market. That's a kind of interesting segue into uh, it's probably inevitable that we have to to raise the topic of Woodford. So. What's your take on on what's currently happening uh, with Neil Woodford, uh, Jonathan? Right. Well, it's uh, as you say, it is an extraordinary story. Um, there are those who will see it in sort of Shakespearean terms. You know, the the, uh, the star farm manager who's um, you know crashed to earth. Um, and I suppose the real story is about you know whether you um, think that is uh, you know a morality story or whether you actually think it's just a you know another business story of. Um, rise and fall. Um, there's no doubt that I think the thing about Neil Woodford, I think, I mean, again, I've met him. I, I don't know him very well. Um, I don't actually, um, uh, I didn't back his uh, patient capital investment trust because I think I did understand what he was trying to do. But the, you've got to think of it in the context of two phases of his career. First first phase of his career, he was very successful as an equity fund manager at Investco Perpetual. 25 years, he worked there more, more or less turned a thousand pounds into twenty five thousand pounds you know and he did that um, you know there's again some issues about how he did that but essentially his you know his his big call was to be 
you know, contrarian not to not to get involved in the in the tech bubble. He owned a lot of tobacco tobacco stocks that did very well over a long period of time when nobody else wanted to own them and so on. Um, but I think when he set up his own firm, it was not so much he wanted to make huge amounts of money. I think people are, you know, there's a lot of people on social media saying, oh, well, you know, it's just another rip-off merchant, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's like that at all. I mean, basically, he has a very firm, strong belief developed over many years that uh, the UK has been very poor at uh, backing and developing uh, leading edge science companies. We have a lot of, you know, first class scientists in this country. Mm. Uh, we have a very poor record at turning those into, you know, uh, long term winners in a way that the Americans have done so much better than us. So have I think. The, have the, sorry to cut in. Have the Americans found our technology and then been able to monetize it? So if you're, if you come up with something in, you know, in your lab in, in, in a, in Oxford somewhere and you say, right, this is the next, you know, super metal or whatever. Um, how can we monetize it? Instead of going to a, a, an investor in the UK, you, you'd look at America. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Or why is it that the UK hasn't been in the forefront of it? Well, I think the, the question of how you turn you know, leading edge uh, science into uh, profitable and sustainable businesses is a very complicated one. Historically, you know, there have been lots of studies into this, you know, official inquiries and so on. There has been this so-called funding gap in, in the UK which we've managed to fill a little bit with, you know, VCTs and AIMS and uh, and so on. But actually, the mechanisms by which finding the, the capital to actually support these businesses, which people don't really often understand very well, they just do it better in America than they do and than we do over here or have done historically. Mm. Uh, we've made and Woodford is a passionate believer in that. And he, you know, if you go back to the something called the K, remember the K review of of stock markets a few years ago, in which Professor John K looked at the UK and, and, you know, said, is it a short-termist thing in the stock market in the UK? And basically said, yes. Neil Woodford was his kind of main witness for the prosecution. And I think he believes passionately that we should there should be more support for these early stage businesses. Now, the question is, and that's one reason what his motivation for setting up on his own and structuring his his, his funds in the way he did. But I mean, the, the real issue about uh, about that is that, of course, over time, he's discovered the pitfalls of trying to do that in, in an open-ended fund structure. And that's really what's caught him out because, you know, these these things are by their nature illiquid and difficult to, to value and to trade. And if you're in an open-ended fund, you know, an OIC or a, so on, uh, it's very difficult when people start redeeming the, the units. You're, you're um, you know, you can't get rid of the illiquid stuff. And then everybody come, gets on your case and drives the price down against you creating all sorts of regulatory issues. And that's what's happened with Woodford. And it is, you know, as I say, you could call it a tragedy, if you like, from his point of view. I think he had, he, I think he had, you know, good intentions. Uh, he also, I'm sure, was not averse to the money that he's made. You know, Woodford Investment Management has made more than 100 million profit in the last four years, four or five years. Uh, it's not bad business to be in, as we know, the fun business, if you get it right. Um, but I don't think this is going to end well. And I think it does raise all sorts of issues about, uh, about regulation, about the relationship with with fund brokers, and so on. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating story, uh, but I don't think it's going to end well from here. What's your take on it, Tim? I, I have to acknowledge that there's, it's difficult to be entirely objective when you're also running a fund management business. Nevertheless, uh, I mean, I, I I I echo a lot of what Jonathan's just said, and I I, I think it seems to me again trying to be brutally objective. That it's going to be a real tragedy if this business fails, because you know, it is in everyone's interest that we we do support British science and innovation and all the rest. And it would be a tragedy 
if all of that just gets blown away by the collapse of this business? I think the question that Neil Wofford has to answer is, whatever your good intentions, whatever your success as, a, as, a, as, a, as an equity fund manager over time, you know, did he actually set himself up in a way that enabled him to um, you know, analyze and support these businesses uh, successfully? And certainly to the extent that he did, he took quite large stakes in these things and uh, you know, was um, actively backing the ones that he did through um, partnerships with others, seemed to have worked a bit better than ones he just backed himself. Uh, and does he have the resources to do that? Um, I don't know. We will find that out in due course, I think. Um, but having said that, I absolutely agree with Tim. I think it would be it would be tragic if this blights the you know the whole business of trying to support uh, early stage companies. I guess the other point though is that you know he raised a lot of money on you know with the help of Hargreaves Lansdowne in particular uh, on the premise that you know he was basically going to support some of these things and back them up with a lot of steady you know income earning uh, FTSE stocks. But the way things have turned out, the you know that was in the prospectus. The way things have turned out, the balance of the uh, fund has changed considerably over the last five years. And now, of course, he has this problem. He's, he's got too much of the illiquid early stage stuff in there. Uh, and uh, as the more redemptions happen, the more that proportion will go up uh, and the more exposed he becomes. So I think there is a question about whether or not what he originally set out to do, uh, whether or not you think that was a good thing. I think it was a good thing. But the way he's actually implemented it, you might have some questions to answer would there have been communication in between saying well this is i'm going to reweight the the fund etc to say what what he was doing because if he's communicated it it's kind of fair enough but if i suppose if he didn't one of the ironies about this whole story is that he made a great play when he started that he was going to do fund management differently from other people uh, he was quite critical of the industry actually as a whole and he said one of the things i'm going to do is i'm going to be totally transparent and i'm going to publish a list a full list of all my holdings every month which he's done Okay, so nobody else in the fund business does that. Mm. They all hide their losses, you know, down the. Down the <laughs> only, have, only have to publish the top, the top names, top, you know, the top ten holdings or something, uh, except in their annual reports. And uh, so he's actually done that. And of course, that was one reason why people were, why the media got onto him. And and to be fair, the Sunday Times, you know, a couple of months ago, they they wrote a story about saying how the the profile of the fund had changed entirely based on just looking at what he's actually published about his own. Holding, so they could, you know, he was <laughs> to that extent. He was transparent about it. I don't think he ever said that. Um, you know, the the, the uh, I can't remember anywhere that he said that the uh, you know he commented on the fact that the the, the proportion of illiquid and uh, early stage holdings was, was rising or not. I can't. I, to be honest, I haven't looked at that. Um, but the information was all there for everybody if you uh, if you care to look. I mean, that's one of the one of the ironies about the whole thing. The prospectus to Woodford Equity Income runs to something like seventy seven pages. Do you think anybody has read that prospectus? Um, of course not. So, so my follow-on question is: what is, what, what, what is the effing point of having a prospectus that nobody ever reads? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, the fact is, you're meant to rely on the fact that somebody has read it. The lawyers have read it, if nobody else. Um, and if you are certainly, if you're in the uh, you know broking or fund promotion business, then you certainly should read it. Or should have read it, um, but you're right. I mean, but it is a sort of safety valve. You know, that it's true that if you look at the difference between you know close-ended and open-ended funds, which is another issue that comes out of this whole Woodford story. You know, he has an investment trust, which is what we call the closed-end fund, as well as this uh, open-ended equity income fund. You know, people take more notice of the prospectuses issued by listed companies because that's a much more serious business uh, than they than they do of uh, fund prospectuses. 
And as you say, I don't think anybody's ever read a fund prospectus. Indeed, I think it's uh, be astonishing if anybody had done, to be honest. But I think the the interesting point with that is if the fund prospectus says one thing, but then he, he changes what he's doing over time, then it's relevant anyway, really, um, to a certain extent. But it, yes. like like you say, it's, that's quite astonishing that he was so transparent about what he was doing. So in that sense, I don't, well, from an independent point of view, I don't see what people have got to complain about if they've seen what he's investing in. Um, I wonder. I just wonder why there've been so many, you know, aggressive redemptions. Like, why did people get cold feet with this? Well, it's very. That's a very good question. I mean, the other thing you you would have noticed. I mean, I noticed this uh, every number of years. I mean, I track quite closely what some of the kind of smart, um, you know, fund of fund investors are doing. Um, I've always been a habit of that because uh, I think, you know, while I don't invest in fund of funds myself, I think. These guys, you know, uh, do actually have a lot of inf- information about what's going on, and, and in many cases, good judgment. And I have to mention my um, one of my um, uh, one of the guys I admire a lot in the fund business is a guy called John Chaffee Roberts at Jupiter, who runs their fund of funds operation, uh, and who I worked with on a book to, you know, make full disclosure. <laughs> he's such a he's a, he's a, he's an absolutely straight as a die, honest, very and very shrewd fellow. He. What, what huge... book is it? Just before you, just because people will want to know. <laughs> well, I don't. It's called uh, Fundology. Oh, and it's right. By is written by John Chaffee Roberts. It's the I think it's the first book written by a professional about the fund investing in funds. Brilliant. Uh, and uh, I persuaded him to do it, and I kind of um, helped publish it. And uh, it's, uh, of course, I think it's quite good. But excellent. Um, How are we going to check that out? It came out, it's more than 10 years ago that it first came out, but I think the basic principles, you know, still stand. And uh, anyway, the point is that um, uh, John has been a fantastic, you know, he's um, he's a very shrewd guy. He was a huge backer of of Neil Woodford. He's a, he's a very good at spotting talent. He was a huge backer of Anthony Bolton when he was running his UK equity fund. Um, but, and he supported Woodford when he launched, but he disposed of his entire holding in Woodford's income funds, uh, I don't know when it was, but 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, I can't remember exactly, mm. which is quite a difficult thing to do, a lot of money involved. Um, and I think he had seen what was happening, and I assume so. I never talked to him about it. And um, uh, he got out, and then others have, have followed him out since. So I think some of the signs were there for people who, you know, obviously professional people who know where to look. But um, uh, obviously the retail investor, the private investor has, um, you know, they don't they don't pay much attention to this kind of thing. But I think the warning signs were there, and I think that um, you know, it, it, uh, of course, once the once the media got onto him, you know, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Really, the you know, the more the more negative stories there are, the more redemptions there are, the more mm. people write about it, and so on, and we go into this kind of spiral, which may, in due course, be creating a, a value opportunity. I don't know. Will you know, that's something we could uh, we could talk about maybe. You've mentioned uh, Anthony Bolton. You've written about Bolton as well, haven't you, uh, Jonathan? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, again. Um, you know, he's interesting. You know, some people say there's an interesting parallel here because uh, Anthony Bolton ran this uh, UK special situations fund for Fidelity for um, for nearly 30 years, and again had an exceptional performance track record. Um, you know, outperforming the his benchmark index fund by about six percent per annum over more than 25 years. I mean, that is an extraordinary result. Um, and then when he retired from that, he went to he started and launched a uh, a fund that invests in Chinese equities. He was interested mm. in the rise of China, and that was very volatile. It started, um, you know, started reasonably well, and then had a very poor patch, and then 
you know, has risen again. And people are saying, oh, well, you, do, you know, these skills don't transfer. And there's some there's some truth in that. But um, I think that the China fund is, is, is China fund has done pretty well since then. So, you know, it's very volatile because, you know, it's a China is a is an emerging market. And, um, you know, it's an early stage, middle stage economy. So, yeah, I mean, but th there are one or two guys who are particularly good at picking stocks. And, uh, you know, if you could find them, they're going to do very well and you can afford to put up with a one or two minor blips uh, for those who are less well endowed, shall we say. It's difficult Don't. to know whether it's a blip or a, uh, a catastrophic turnaround, though. I guess that that's part of the problem. And uh, I guess the, the joy of investing as well. <laughs> the joy of investing, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there's... The joy of stocks. <laughs> <laughs> there's always, um, well, you know, we wouldn't be in this game at all, would we? If I mean, if it was all so boring and dull that we didn't have these, uh, you know, this roller coaster ride, we would we wouldn't be interested, would we? Really, it's not quite so. Absolutely. Maybe Tim, you don't agree with that. Actually, I think Tim, you quite like kind of dull and boring. I quite well, like dull and boring. Actually, this, the, <laughs> this, this, um, there's a quote that I, of yours that I, I appropriated, uh, along with the seventy-eight thousand <laughs> other quotes that I appropriated <laughs> my own book, and it's it's. It's the following, Peer, quote, periods of excruciating short-term underperformance are a burden that all genuine value investors have to endure, unquote. And it's, it's a cracking line. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, it is true. And uh, I mean, you know, let's go back to Warren Buffett. I mean, he's uh, sensational long-term uh, performance, at least until, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, but there have been three periods when his, you know, the shares in Buck Hathaway have fallen by at least 50%. Okay, and uh, you know that's if if that makes you uncomfortable, then obviously you shouldn't be uh, you shouldn't be uh, either you know investing that way or at least following people who do invest that way, you know because these things happen. And I think uh, I think you're you're channeling um, uh, Charlie Munger there because there's a it's one of my favourite quotes which is along the lines of he was interviewed I think by Evan Davis. Uh, during the the global financial crisis, and Evan Davis said, "So, are you concerned about the you know, the the recent decline in Berkshire Hathaway stock uh, in its share price?" And he responded, "I'm not going to attempt the impression, but you have to imagine someone even older than me um, saying the following." He said, "No, not in the least. Could be bothered. Uh, this is the third time in my in my career that uh, top tick to bottom tick that shares in Berkshire have fallen by fifty percent, and." If you're not willing to put up with the vicissitudes of the market, then you deserve the mediocre returns you're going to get by not being in the market. And it's a really brutal line, but it's it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And the point is that if you have confidence in what you're doing and your methods, and also that you understand fully how, in particular, the equity markets work, then you should have a reason to be confident when uh, when these things happen because you know that they're going to come back and you know that they're going to, if you're in the right places, you're going to do well. And I think that is, as we all know, we go back to this issue about short-termism and the problem for private investors is that they don't really like that. And the problem for regulators is that if you, you know, it's an issue I think is, is quite interesting at the moment. You know, if you're, if you're, if you work in a regulated business, well, Tim, you might know this now, but, you know, you have to, um, and certainly if you're advising people, you have to say, well, what is your tolerance for risk? Well, if you ask people the question, you know, well, how would you feel if your, um, you know, your value of your portfolio went down by 50%? Uh, people are going to say, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really like that. Um, 
obviously, then, therefore, you put them down in the boxes. You know, these people are risk averse, therefore, we can't put them into the higher risk equity things and so on. But if you actually said to them, well, you know, how would you feel if your portfolio went down by 50% and then, you know, 18 months later, it was down only 20% and then, you know, another year later, it was up by 100%. You know, how would you feel about that? And say, oh, well, that's probably okay. Uh, but, you know, if you only take the kind of extremes as your measure of risk tolerance, then um, you're going to never be in the best things. You're never going to be able to own, you know, Buffett and Munger. So you should really ask the question, can you deal with a loss of 50% if it's followed by a 200% gain rather than just the 50% loss? Well, I'll put it another way. If you if, if it goes down 50% and that so worries you, you have to sell it, then that is a disaster for you because yeah. then you, and you really lose out. But if you actually are knowledgeable enough or confident enough to say, okay, I know this could happen and I'm going to hang on though, I'm not going to be bounced out of my holding, then uh, that is the right way to think about it, provided that you know what you're doing. I mean, this is the other... You know, one of Buffett's other great quotes is that, you know, the real value of uh, diversification is to protect yourself against your own ignorance. In other words, if you don't know what you're doing, then uh, you need to be diversified. And if you do know what you're doing, then it's okay to be, uh, you know, have a concentrated portfolio. So he knows what he's doing. So he has a concentrated portfolio in blue chip stocks that he feels has a moat or protection around their business so that it's very difficult for other companies to compete with them. And over time, will just produce cash. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think the way he would say it is that the <clears throat> what you're looking for is the companies that do have these moats and so on, have, have you know, uh, sustainable competitive advantage, we'll call it whatever you, whichever jargon you want to use. But in particular, you want a business that can generate high returns on capital, high returns on equity as well, high returns on capital. Um, and if you can do that, and if that's, they can do that, if they can reinvest that cash that comes in uh, at similar rates of return, then, which is why, you know, Buffett never pays a dividend until recently, well, he's, he's thinking about it now, but he's never paid a dividend because the things he's investing in, he would argue, they can sustain the ability to uh, make a uh, superior return on capital, and therefore, what's the point of returning it to shareholders when you can go on doing that? I mean, that's his basic pitch. Uh, but you have to be able to find the companies. In his case, now he's using so much, deploying so much cash. You know, he has to make a, a multi-billion-pound investment for it to even register on the uh, on the value of the of the company. Um, you've got to be able to do something that you can hold for a long period of time because as Woodford's discovering, you can't afford to be bounced out of it. You've got to have a long-term holding if you've got a big sustainable uh, investment in, the, in a company. But it's the return on capital that matters, the return on equity and capital that matters. Um, it's not the, you know, that's what's produced by the business structure, the, the moats and so on. And that's what you uh, that's what you want to own. And that's what he does own. So the old joke about asking for directions and the person telling you, you shouldn't start from here in terms of investing in the market right now, certainly mm -hmm. the Western markets, if you wanted to put that approach to use, would you start from here or would you look outside at other markets, other regions? Okay, so are we talking about the UK or are we talking about the US or what? Both, really. I, I kind of bundle them together to a certain extent, but you, you may say one's more overvalued than the other, but I, I, I would find it very hard to believe that the US would go down and the, US, the UK would go up, but... But I could be wrong. Well, um, or you know, versa. <laughs> it all depends what's in the price. I mean, if you, if the, uh, you know, if the, if the, if the U.S. is so successful that everybody wants to own it and, and it becomes incredibly expensive, 
uh, and nobody wants to uh, buy anything in the UK and it becomes very cheap, then uh, you want to you want to shift a little bit towards the UK. But that's not really the way I think about it. I have to be honest, it's not the way that I deal with it, my own money anyway. I think, you know, I mean, I think one of the interesting, fascinating things about the last 10 years, and I know Tim uh, has some interesting perspective on this. I mean, I think the ten, last 10 years have been fantastic in a way. When I say fantastic, not just because they produced very good investment returns, almost regardless of, uh, you know, of what you've done, <laughs> if you like, but because, you know, for the sheer sustainability of particular trends, I mean, it's really been quite extraordinary, I think, that, um, uh, you know, things like, you know, value and growth, which one has done better? This, you know, these style factors you can look at when you're when you're investing, you know, and basically growth has trumped value for ten years or so. You know, it's almost been in a kind of straight line, if you like, if you look at the look at the charts. Um, you know, that's been extraordinary. The fact that you know the the uh, decline in bond yields has continued. Uh, we haven't broken out of this long term downtrend just yet. Uh, everybody thought we were going to do so a couple of years ago, but we haven't done that. Um, and so I don't think, you know, my view is you, I have to say, I'm I'm unashamedly influenced by the great phenomenon that academics can't understand, which is the value of momentum in a, as, a, as, a, as an investment strategy. You know, my view is basically we've had a particular environment for the last 10 years, uh, and it will continue until or unless the factors that created that environment change. And um, therefore, you know, um, part of that is the fact that the U.S. has done very well. And uh, I think a lot of people have been bounced out of owning shares in, in, in the U.S. because they think it's too expensive. But, you know, I think if you look at the, the way the world is, and uh, we can maybe come on to talk about whether there's going to be a big policy regime change, um, which would change everything. You know, the basic idea of the last few years, I mean, I'm not a great fan of emerging markets. I think they often look cheap, but I've, you know, I've done very well out of sticking with global equities and, you know, which implies quite a big holding in the U.S., and of course, the UK. Well, Brexit has influenced things. We can talk about that. It does look a bit cheap at the moment, but um, you know, do you want to take that risk? I don't know. Let's discuss. So, you're you're basically saying you want to go with momentum, and of course, the US has done <clears throat> better than most. Mainly, I guess, driven by the technology companies. But as we've we've kind of discussed and we've seen recently, some of these technology companies have been taking a bit of a battering, and there's been a lot of volatility. Is that do we see that as an opportunity to get in, as as Warren Buffett has, or do we think there's going to be a regime change and they're going to be targeted by the regulators, which seems to be increasingly the case? And if if they start to turn down, what sectors in the US would you be looking to invest in or would you just pull out? I mean, I know it's not just a technology story, but that is one of the main drivers of okay, growth. No. Well, there are lots of things there. I mean, I think you need to look at, you know, if you're interested in the technology company, you need to look at it on a case-by-case basis because, you know, they are different, some of these uh, these tech companies. There's a big difference between, um, you know, if you're talking about the social media companies or you're talking about Amazon or you're talking about some of the biotech stuff. Uh, they're all very uh, they're all very different and different things apply. So I think I make a couple of points. Number one, I mean, regulation, yes. I think social. if you look at the social media things, they're going to get regulated. Now, uh, or increasingly, there will be efforts to regulate them. Well, what we know about that from history is that the regulators will be slow, they will be late to doing the things they should be doing, um, and eventually, you know, history suggests that regulation is, unless you go, you know, to the violent extreme of breaking up companies under anti antitrust principles, you know, like they did with Standard Oil and so on, 
you know, regulation tends to help the incumbents basically because it deters anybody else from getting involved in the business. So I don't think you necessarily can assume just because they're going to get regulated that the companies won't go on doing quite well in financial terms anyway. Very interesting point. Very interesting. That's the first time I've heard someone say that. Right. Well, it's, it's, I think there's lots of examples you can think of. I mean, another classic example of going mentioned Woodford again, you know, tobacco, you know, as soon as uh, the regulators got onto the tobacco companies, nobody, nobody in their right minds is going to start a tobacco company today. Um, and uh, they produce fantastic returns over the last 20 years, you know, so that does happen. Um, but I'm not necessarily saying that you should invest in those companies just for that reason. No. I'm just that observation. Okay. Yeah, some of these things look expensive. And again, you, you're you not going to own just them. You're going to own other things as well. You know, if you're looking at things like, you know, Amazon is, is a phenomenon, no question about it, uh, as a business. I mean, can you think of a more disruptive business uh, that's had such a huge impact over such a long period of time? I struggle to think of anything that's done, uh, been quite as successful as that in disrupting whole sectors one after the other. And, um, you know, the fact that Buffett has actually bought some stock in Amazon, I believe, I don't think it's necessarily his decision anymore. He doesn't really make most of those portfolio decisions. But, um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, Amazon is a phenomenon and it's been allowed to be a phenomenon. I don't see Amazon being regulated anytime soon. I don't know whether you think differently. Um, but uh, at some point it will reach, uh, you know, it'll reach saturation point. But most of its income now comes from doesn't come from retail anyway. It comes from um, the server business. Right. I, I mean, I, I think something that's as disruptive as Amazon and produces such profits is just ripe for regulation, inverted commas, which is basically just another way of taxing uh, to get for the government to get hold of some of those some of those profits, really, especially when they've been hugely successful. Um, so they they may introduce something on the basis of of the the point of regulation but actually it's it's got more to do with just trying to get hold of some of the money that they've made yeah that's a fair point i think that's absolutely true and of course some of these global tax arrangements are you know i'm sure will be uh, will be reined in in due course that's a very fair point yeah but is there much point in trying to beat warren buffett wouldn't it just be better to say i mean from i'm not saying that you can't do better than him but if you're if you have his philosophy in your own investment strategy, why not just put, say, seventy-five percent of your capital into his fund, and and or, or maybe even more, and just sit back and say, "Well, let him get on with it. I can't. I'm not going to do better than him." Well, I asked myself that question when, <laughs> when I was uh, when I'd done this thesis on him and went to see him in nineteen in nineteen ninety one. Wow. But everybody at the time was saying, "God, this 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 is expensive. You won't be able to keep this up for, for long." <laughs> And uh, it was, it was literally, you opened the newspaper, everybody was saying that. And, um, you know, the guy's an old guy. He's, you know, good God, he's 63 or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he's going to live to 120, yeah, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, Charlie Munger is 94 or something, isn't he? Uh, I think 94, 95, something like that. So, yeah, and I would have done, you know, if I just put all my money into that, I would have done exceptionally well. Uh, and, uh, of course, I wish I had. No, but, I mean, that, the other point is that, you know, people don't invest in a vacuum. It's one of the things, I think, that is difficult to communicate. You know, everybody says, well, what will you do today? Okay, well, if I was starting out, you know, if I haven't got any money and I was starting out today, then, you know, I would put, obviously, I would have a pension or something. I put it all into an equity fund, a long-term equity fund. Uh, I, I could put it in an index fund for a sort of core, and then I would add probably a couple of, you know, uh, emerging market things and, and hope for the best. But I mean, the point is that most of us, the issue for today, I think, is really about 
we've had these wonderful 10 years um, uh, since the end of the global financial crisis as an investor. And uh, the question really is, you know, how long can that go on? Uh, how long can the current regime go on? And, um, you know, if you have been involved at all in the markets over that period, you know, we have to be honest and say we've done very well out of it. And therefore, the question is whether on sort of risk grounds, you want to kind of tone it down a bit, uh, reduce your exposure a little bit. And um, and then the question is, well, how would you do that? And, um, you know, one of the ironies is that um, I've written quite a few books about uh, successful professional investors because I do actually, I did think it was interesting to try and find out if there was any kind of secret source to be found about about why some of the guys did better than, than others. Um, and my firm belief, and what I do myself, is I do actually look what I hope is sort of the half dozen uh, active fund managers who actually are worth supporting, and I try to, uh, you know, I try to find them and try to try to own them. Um, but the irony is that I also, when I was in America, I did actually go to see Vanguard, you know, who are the pioneers of uh, index fund investing. And when I came back to the UK, uh, you know, there were no index funds effectively then. Um, and the ones that there were, the first one, that, you know, the first ones, they all charged more than one percent per annum, which was a ludicrous price for for an index fund designed to defeat its very objective. Uh, and so I read a lot of articles about how basically, you know, don't forget tracker funds. They're very, very uh, good things if they're cheap and they track the market efficiently. You know, for most people, they will be they will do a perfectly adequate job. You know, you get reliable second quartile performance out of an index fund, a good one anyway, a one that does the job properly. Um, and it's only if you really, you know, have the appetite and the energy to, um, uh, and, and if you like the the kind of hubris to go looking for the, you know, the actively managed funds that will, that might outperform consistently over time, that you should go anywhere else. Um, and uh, but fortunately, there are some. I mean, you know, Linsel Train and uh, and so far Terry Smith's done a very good job with Fundsmith. Um, you know, and I'm very happy that I've managed to spot both of those at an early stage. You've touched on the the rise of indexation. Is is there not a point that indexation is fine, but it's it's kind of value specific or value sensitive? So it might not be the best trade in the world to be backing an index tracker when the market's at all time highs. Uh, yes, that's a fair point. I mean, I, but it's a different question, really, isn't it? The question is really how much equity exposure do you want, and then how do you actually want to get that equity exposure? Yeah. Um, I don't think I personally haven't seen any evidence that you know it used to be said in the old days everybody's there were lots of kind of arguments that active managers put up and one of them was ah well you know when there's a bear market our guys are going to spot that coming and they're going to get out and they're going to protect you well there's absolutely no evidence that that happens but um, also bear, bear market was that granddad yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah bear market yeah yeah never heard of such a thing well actually as as you know well you you and I have lived through a couple so maybe uh, four i think in my cases but there've only been four in the last you know my investing lifetime and sure as hell they do come around and uh, you know the, then the question is well you know how how much effort should i put into trying to anticipate uh, using that word correctly how much are you to anticipate when the next bear market is going to come and um you know, because again, this comes back to issue, you know, a Buffett style question. Well, you know, are you qualified to spot when it comes? Will you know for sure when it happens? And the answer for most people is, of course not. Nobody will know when it when it's coming and uh, uh, and it'd be unwise to try on that basis if you don't actually have any idea. Because the danger of selling out too quickly is that you miss, you know, you miss half the best of the equity market, uh, the bull market. But um I, again, I'm sort of old-fashioned enough to believe that actually you probably can, if you look hard enough, 
there may be some signals that um, can help you in spotting when the uh, the next bear market is coming. But it has to be said that um, it's very, very difficult. But, so what, um, what signals would you be looking for then? Well, I look at the ones that, you know, everybody else looks at. I mean, let's make that first of all, you know, the yield curve uh, and all the kind of leading indicators. It's a whole range of leading indicators that can point you or have historically pointed to you uh, when markets are going to turn down. I mean, the problem is that they only they only work in retrospect because all the leading indicators tend to be kind of revised downwards. After like, the event. like unemployment, for example, U.S. unemployment. Well, U.S. unemployment is is, is a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. Um, you know, that, that's the last thing to to turn around normally. But um, everybody watches it for the state of the economy. They do indeed. They do indeed. But, uh, I, I don't think necessarily it's going to tell you when the recession is coming. It will tell you when it tell you after the event the recession has started. That's absolutely but it won't true. Tell you in advance. Yeah, <laughs> when it's going to happen. But um, I think you look at all these things, and then. You know, I'm also, you know, I mean, I think this may appeal to you. I don't know. But, um, you know, I also do look at a lot of, I look at a lot of charts. I'm not a chartist. I'm not a technical analyst. I don't, uh, I don't sort of believe in Fibonacci ratios and all that kind of mumbo jumbo stuff. But I do think if you look at, um, you know, if you look at uh, sort of medium long-term charts, you can at least see where the market's trending. It tells you where the market is today. And I don't know if you remember in Jeremy Siegel's book, um, you know, Stocks of the Long Run. I think it's called, isn't it? Um, which a lot of people read, but they never seem to remember this chapter, which pointed out that if you actually, um, you know, you 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 increase or reduce your exposure whenever the market moves more than one or two standard deviations above its trend line, to use the kind of technical jargon, um, you can um, you can uh, uh, increase your chances of avoiding the worst of bear markets, um, and you can get a a better return for a unit of risk over long periods of time. That was uh, pretty clear. And so what I do is I do look at the charts, I look at the moving averages, and you know it's a matter of simple definition. If you were in a position where you have enough capital to be able to do this, you know, if you just sold your everything you owned, let's assume no taxes, let's assume a perfect world to remember, assume no taxes, assume everything else. If you if you sold every time the your, your stocks every time they fell below the a uh, 200-day moving average for um, you know for more than a month, uh, and then you bought them back when they when they went above the 200 moving day average, you would get whipsawed a couple of times. But basically, by definition, you would have to avoid the worst of the bear market. There's just no other way of putting it. You would avoid, you would have avoided every um, the depths of every bear market since uh, recorded history began. So I look at that because I think that's uh, you know that's one of many things that I feed into the kind of hopper. Uh, obviously, no one in the real world can actually you know, sell all their equities one day and buy them all back again the next day. It's technically possible, but um, it's uh, it's it can be expensive. But I think I think we'll get a clue when the next recession is coming. I mean, I think obviously rising interest rates does tend to be a good indicator. You rising know, every- interest, rising interest rates. What's that, Granddad? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, fortunately, I like I've got lots of grey hair, so uh, I do know what rising interest rates are. Onto a fascinating <laughs> policy issue. I mean, I. I'll tell you what's really concerning me at the moment, and I'm interested what Tim thinks about this because I know he's, you know, he's worried about this for a while. I mean, I think what's happening, in the, what's happened in the last six months is, or nine months rather, is really, really interesting. You know, we were, uh, we were at a point where everybody was beginning to say, okay, look, looks like the Fed's going to raise interest rates a bit more. We're going to get, um, you know, we're going to get a sort of regime change where where uh, we may get a bit of inflation back finally. You know, we may actually be able to get out of this. Um, 
crazy policy making that we've had to have for the last 10 years or so. And, you know, the world is going to go back to normal, you know, the magic word normalization. Well, everybody thought that. And then suddenly, you know, people no longer think that anymore. The bond market, the great, the great, uh, you know, the bond vigilantes, you know, nine months ago, they were saying they're going to be, you know, two or three rate rises this year. Now they're saying they're going to be likely to be cuts, you know, so much for their great uh, forward vision. But obviously, what that actually talks about is what's actually happening with central bank policymaking, which is Tim's great expertise, I know. And um, what worries me is that I think, you know, the central banks don't really know anymore what they're doing. They don't seem to have an idea where to go from here. Uh, they thought they had a plan. The Fed at least thought they had a plan. The uh, the Bank of Japan thought they had a plan. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be working. And so and now we're having all these sort of crazy ideas floating around like, uh, you know, modern monetary theory uh, and, um, you know, people's capitalism, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we may get back to some kind of QE again. Uh, and I think what's worrying me is the fact that if the policymakers don't actually, you know, any longer know where they are going, or at least they're on a, they were on the road and now they've been sort of forced to do a U-turn uh, for whatever reason. Um, I think that's quite worrying. To me, that is a concern. I don't know whether you agree with that, Tim. I mean, you've been concerned for some time, I think. I mean, the the, I suppose you, you're right that the last ten years has been completely incredible. The 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 error I made was completely failing to see the aggressiveness of central bank response to the crisis. So, uh, I mean, I'm not sure. You could argue that the Japanese the Japanese did have some form in terms of introducing QE before 2008. But I think to most, most objective observers, the scale of QE has just been eye-watering and completely unprecedented. And in a world of 5,000-year lows in interest rates and literally trillions of dollars, certainly hundreds of billions of dollars, pounds, euros, and yen being printed out of thin air. You know, it's like, I, it may, this may even be a Charlie Munger line, something like, well, if you, if, you know, if you gave me a, a few billion dollars, I'll show you a good time as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they've been struggling with, I mean, obviously, we all know that what the central bankers thought when they started QE was that it would be a temporary thing. Uh, and you can go back and you can read all these papers they produced, which said, you know, the whole point of it is it's just a quick, short, sharp shop. The, uh, you know, the market's about a heart attack uh, and we need to kind of, uh, you know, keep them alive and then we'll be go back to normal. And so of course, ten, ten years later, here we still are. Ten years later, here we still are. And it looks like we're going to be kind of going back to do, doing the same thing again. And I think that's that to me is quite concerning. So I am becoming rather more defensive. I mean, I've been very, you know, I've kind of, uh, I have to be honest, I've been, um, you know, I've, I've enjoyed all the kind of doom, doomsayers over the last 10 years because I think if you look back at history, what you could see, I think, quite clearly after the financial crisis was that if you look at previous periods when policymakers have gone for what we call financial repression, i.e. keeping interest rates below the rate of inflation, um, or trying to anyway, the thing to own has been, you know, been real real assets to be, um, you know, to own equities and and uh, and property. Um of course, we didn't expect bonds to do as well as they have done in that environment, but that's been another extraordinary feature of the last the last ten years. Um, but now we got to this point, and normally around this sort of time, you'd think that the, you know, the um, the uh, the situation would be getting better. And of course, the concern, the other concern is that, you know, go back to the the crisis, and people saying, well, you know, does it make sense to um, deal with the debt crisis by encouraging people to take on more debt, or not people, but uh, you know 
uh, governments to take on more debt in particular and corporations to a lesser extent. Does it make sense to treat you know, a debt crisis that way? And which the answer is, of course, no, it doesn't make sense to do that. Uh, so what, what's the plan? Well, we're going to try and get some inflation so we can inflate away the value of the debt. Well, that hasn't worked. So we've still got this debt problem. And at some point, you know, if every time we get to a point where it looks like there's a chance to deal with it as central banks by putting up interest rates and you know, gradually returning to normal, uh, if we don't take that, then at some point, I think we're going to get to what, um, what uh, you know, in, we in would know, a Minsky moment, exactly. A Minsky moment, which is, you know, when things go so well for a long time, everything is quite stable and no one seems to actually ever get punished for doing naughty things, uh, that suddenly that is going to blow up in a nasty way. And that is my that is my concern, that at some point that's bound to happen. If we go on the way we are, I, I don't see any alternative to that. Which the only, sorry to interrupt, the only thing that keeps me awake at night is the idea that a giant asteroid made of pure gold could crash into the Earth. <laughs> Yeah, it could it could land in North London though, Tim. You might get there first. That's, well, like, well, yeah, but that's not really the issue. So. <laughs> but, well, uh, I'm glad you're sleeping at night anyway, Tim. That's something. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. let's let's accentuate the positives here. So you, 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 you about 20 minutes ago, you set off the Brexit klaxon. So oh, oh, Tim, just probably, before we do yeah. Brexit, can I yeah, just yeah. I just wanted to circle back to something we, we, you were talking about before, Jonathan, and you mentioned about charting. Obviously, that's that's my discipline. You know, I. I yeah, I gather that. Yeah. Yes. So uh, you know, I was very pleased to hear that because I, I don't see why anybody won't use charts as part of augmenting their strategy. Even if, even if they're, you know, Warren Buffett was very dismissive of charts, but I think, I don't think he really understood what you could do with them. You know, you, you it helps you to, if you if you love Tesco's, well, why buy it when it's collapsing? Wait for it to turn around. Um, look at a chart of of uh, you know. Deutsche Bank share price, you know, it's a straight line down. Why, why would you be buying that? We, we look for discipline and a, a certain signal before you step into the market. Now, if you're timing this over you know, decades, of course, whether you buy this month or next month or in three months' time, it, it, it might not make that much difference. But if you're a trader, it makes the world a difference. But there's something very interesting that I'm looking at right now, and it just happens to be in, in Berkshire Hathaway's share price. And one of the main technical signals that we get is it sounds so obvious and it is so obvious but nobody looks at it and, and that is when a market is about to turn around it stops going up for a considerable period of time so i would encourage anybody to have a look at a chart of, of berkshire hathaway and you'll see that from 2018 to today it's really gone nowhere it's been in this massive range now, if you want to see something similar have a look at the chart of tesla i know they're completely different in terms of what they do but in terms of technical analysis they are very similar they are warning signs that the market is is topping and it, for me this is like the poster child for the american stock market if if but if the berkshire hathaway stock price starts to turn down then I don't see how anything else can go up. Forget about technology or whatever you want. So the signal for me is if Berkshire Hathaway share price breaks the 2018 lows in either the A or B shares, it's game over. But at the moment, it's not looking good. There is a massive, what we call a head and shoulders reversal pattern, which is another fancy way of just saying the market has gone sideways for a long time. Why yeah. would you be sitting on it? Now, that it could mean that we're we're just building up for another leg higher, of course. And, you know, then if the market breaks into a new high or looks like it's approaching a new high and um, we would get sort of 
we would throw that bearish story away and, and start to look at the bullish story. But at the moment, as we sit here today, it doesn't look right. It, there's something wrong with the market. And, and until those worries have subsided, I, I think you've got to be very cautious. And I, I detected that's kind of what how you feel at the moment about the market. You're a little bit cautious. And I just wanted to ask on the basis of that, how would you feel what would you do to play it from your own perspective would you lighten up your holdings or would you look at something that may go up um if there is a crisis like would you look at the japanese yen um or would you look at buying gold or, or maybe even something as as uh, as far out as as bitcoin right uh well the answer is i probably wouldn't do any of those things right. uh, <laughs> i detected that you might given your views on buffett but okay no 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 i mean i agree with you first of all about the about the, the chart messages i think that's absolutely right it's clear i mean the, the other you know i mean I, the things i do take away from from looking at charts is it's a very simple way to visualize sort of where supply and demand is at any one point secondly you know if the trend line is going up or down that's that makes a difference uh, and obviously breaking out through new highs is important uh, always a good signal when it does that and equally not when it doesn't and um so yeah the, and, and when it's replicated across several markets similar markets then it becomes a more powerful message so yeah i mean the u.s market is stalled i think it's clear to say that and you know other markets around the world and on average are, uh, are trending lower at the moment so yeah i am very cautious about about that but you know i'm not going to do anything radical yet i'm keeping a close eye on it um but i have increased the amount of you know, the defensive things in my portfolio, that's really what I'm doing. I'm not looking, you know, I've made a lot of money out of the last 10 years, um, you know, in a humble way, I hasten to add. I don't, not sort of, uh, I don't want to be uh, boastful about it, just, but it has been a wonderful period for everybody and I've managed to be in some good things. So I'm kind of reducing my, my exposure gradually and I'm keeping mm -hmm. a wary eye on it. I'm not actually looking particularly for anything new or particular. I'm not sort of driven by an urge to buy Tesla shares or indeed, I have a little bit of gold as a bit of insurance, but I don't, you know, I'm never going to put a lot of money into gold. And I'm, I'm not a gold bug in that sense. When, uh, when did, do you mind if I ask, when, when did you when did you think about getting into gold? What, what was, your, was it recent or was it a long time ago? Uh, when did I get think about getting into gold? Uh, first of all, well, before the financial crisis, I had a little bit of gold. Oh, right. Um, and then I sold some when it you know when it got to 1900. I didn't sell it at 1900, needless to say, uh, but I did sell it about at about uh, oh I can't remember now 1400 or something, you know. And um, uh, and so basically, <laughs> you know, big deal really. Uh, then it went down a lot further, and then it came up again. Um, so I bought a little more when it was about uh, and it was about uh, 1050 or 1100 something like that. Um, but I didn't do it particularly because I thought it was, uh, you know, partly because I thought it was, you know, it was at a fair price level. But I mean, you'd, I, I didn't buy gold to make a lot of money out of it. I bought it as a, purely as an insurance policy. Right. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I suppose what I'm really saying is that by temperament, I, I don't know whether other people are the same as me, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't lie awake at night worrying about the things that have gone up by 20 times. You know, the fear of missing out is not part of my temperament. Uh, I love it when other people make money out of out of Bitcoin and God knows what else. Um, but I personally don't uh, don't worry for one minute about not being part of that. And I think part of dealing with the stock market is to, you know, if I can if I can dare to put it in these sort of presumptuous terms, you know, you need to approach it with a lot of emotional intelligence. And if part of your if you're you know if you're if you're worried that other people are making money when you're not, then you're not going to do very well, I'm afraid. Um, so you've got to match it to your own temperament. And my temperament is at the moment. You know, I'm very calm about it. I just got my eyes peeled on what's happening. 
and uh, I'm looking very much harder for these signs of uh, of uh, recession or slowdown than I was, uh, you know, uh, five years ago or you know, 2016 was a was an interesting year, uh, but I didn't. I managed to get that one right. Didn't get panicked out of the market then, um, and I'm just waiting to see. So I'm, you know, I don't have anything in particular. I got some quite a lot of Japan in my portfolio because I think it looks, you know, there's a structural reason the reforms that are going on there. I think a reason why you would want to have some exposure to Japanese equities. They, uh, you know, if you've got a carefully selected portfolio, I think they will they will do well over the next uh, period. But um, and I'm and I don't have a lot in the UK, so um, I might tinker at the edges. But I'm not going to make radical changes. I just don't think that's the way that uh, you know the way you can afford to um, to go about things personally. Gold is looking interesting as we speak. It's it has been in this very boring range for you know five seven years it seems, but now it looks like it, it wants to break out, and so we, we will see. So I had this is rushing towards this towards a very big level at thirteen fifty four. If it can get through there, then we could we could really see it, it squeeze higher. So it's a, it's an interesting market from just from a technical point of view. As we speak, but I'm, I was very interested to hear how how you you've played that, how you've kind of just bought a little bit, because of course Warren Buffett says that it, there's no point buying it because it doesn't pay it pay a, a dividend, and uh, I just wondered what you thought about his view on gold. I know it's difficult to speak for somebody else, but um, <laughs> but well, well, it's difficult to speak for him. I agree. I'm yeah, since <laughs> um, he's perfectly capable of speaking for himself. Yeah. Um, but what yeah, do you I mean, think I mean, of his the, view, basically? The standard arguments against against gold. I mean, you know, I know, I know what they are. I've heard them rehearsed many times. Um, you know, and his, you know, he trots out the old story about you know you dig it out of a hole and then you transport it several thousand miles and put it back in the hole in the ground. Um, you know, all true. Uh, doesn't impossible to value. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think you know we all know also from history that you know gold does have a value um, in a, in a couple of ways. And, um, but, you know, he doesn't need to buy gold because he's, you know, he's not short of a bob or two, let's put it that way. I think also with, with Warren Buffett, it suddenly occurred to me that his worst trades have always been currency trades and he claims not to really understand it. And to be fair, gold is, you could go, regard gold as a currency. So it's just another well, he's, currency he's trade. Al- he's also had his ass handed to him by trying to manipulate the price of silver. Indeed. Indeed. Did he really? When, right. when did that happen? Oh, cracky. That was quite a long time ago. But he did try to build up a big position in silver. And uh, he was quite funny. Right? <laughs> he was he tried to do a bunker hunt and he actually tried oh. to manipulate it. No, for, no. Any, for, any, for any listeners, that's Cockney rhyming slang, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I don't think he tried to call it the market, but he actually he did build up a very big position in silver. And uh, uh, when he was asked about it at uh, the annual meeting, which one of the ones I actually happened to be at, uh, and uh, he sort of said, "Yeah, it was a mistake." And Charlie Munger said, "Well, we're just one of these little things." He has these moments when he has these crazy ideas. You know, we didn't <laughs> we allow him to do this from time to time. Um, he, he, he didn't. He didn't inhale. He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> but so, so, but that makes the point that he did actually see the, the value in holding a precious metal at one point. It's just because he got his fingers burnt, he decided that it wasn't for him. I mean, I mean, it's also another point that he really rejected technology stocks and he's only very recently he's got into apple which is is kind of a surprise really yeah but again i mean this comes back to this point about you know fear of missing out i mean you if you're if you're a fund manager let's go back to this business about being a fund manager if you're a fund manager you know you're you live and die by your performance over unfortunately over a short period of time 
That's what determines whether people buy your fund or sell your fund. Okay. And that shouldn't be how the world is, but that is how the world is. Okay. So, you know, if something does very well and you're not in it, you have to, you know, you have regret. Okay. And you may actually see it in the number of redemptions you get from your fund if you, you know, you fail to own X or Y and it went up more than anything else in the market. But I don't think, to be fair to Buffett, I don't think he really, you know, he's not worried about that. <laughs> he doesn't. I mean, the interesting thing about my, when I did this thesis on him, the interesting thing I discovered was that, um, you know, he said, you've got to stick to your circle of competence. And, uh, you know, when I looked at what he actually invested in, he only invested in, I think, you know, out of, in those days there, I think there were about 25 or 30 sectors, you know, they were broke down the market in the US, it was 30 sectors. He'd only ever, ever invested in seven of them. You know, in other words, the three quarters of the market, he'd never actually owned a stock in. Uh, he's not, you know, because he didn't understand them for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, he's done okay without having to do that. And I think, um, you know, he would, uh, I think he'd also say about gold. I mean, the problem is, you know, how do you value gold? Very difficult to value it. You can, you can argue for owning it at almost any price at almost any time because it has, you know, that insurance value. But actually, how you value it at any one point in time uh, is very difficult. It's not to say you can't, you know, find a trading signal to buy or sell it. Uh, but if you're a trader, that's a different thing from being an investor. Um, and actually, valuing gold, I think, is quite difficult. I think that's a that's a very important point about gold. But something that I think people miss is that you could actually argue that about anything. I mean, give give me a foolproof metric in how to value a stock or a bond or any other product. Um, and you'll find that there's so many different views as to how to value it, that actually there is never really one surefire way. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I mean, I think if you have a, if you own a share in, a, in a, you own a share in a company that pays you a dividend, you have a, you have a metric that tells you that, uh, you know, there is some metric that gives it some value. Okay. Now you hope that the others, um, there's no, there's, I think what you're saying is there's no, you know, precise way to measure the value of something i think that's absolutely yes, yes. That, by future that, by definition it's about you know future it's it's the future income the cash flows of uh, whatever you're investing in uh, if there are cash flows which there aren't in gold of course but well you know, let's take that example with for for say nasdaq stocks there were no future cash flows there was nothing none of that and they went to the moon so that that's my point there are times when one tries to make a rule for something and then the market just kind of blows that rule completely out of the water and it's happened so many times in history um and it, and if the, if it was as simple as following a rule then you wouldn't have booms in in stocks that are making nothing and you wouldn't have crashes in very good companies so right. at any point in time you might say well hang on a minute why why can't we value woodford's fund and say well actually there's some value there why can't we buy it but this price is going down so how may, maybe you can but you know, it's the it's the same argument. It's it's surprisingly a similar argument, I think, that than people realise. They think they, they think just because gold hasn't got a a yield um, and doesn't pay interest, that it, it can't be valued. But everything else can be valued. I think that's 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 a subtlety that that I think Warren Buffett's actually missed. Personally. No, I, okay. Well, I again, without wishing to speak for him. I mean, I think his point would be, uh, you're right about one thing. I mean, you've got to distinguish there between when you're investing in something, are you investing in the market or are you investing in uh, an entity? Okay. And the reason that he would in not invest in gold because he doesn't have a yield, that may be one of the reasons. 
Um, but uh, and also the reason why I wouldn't invest in a in a in a kind of blue sky stock where the price is set by the market. Okay, but if you, uh, I think it's 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 very difficult to say that um, you know some businesses don't have some kind of intrinsic value. Um, I think they definitely do. And uh, you know you, you need to distinguish between what is the market price today, the price set by you know supply and demand in the market. That's not the value. That is that is the only approximation we have to the the value as of today. But that value that could be right or it could be wrong. That is when the sort of value investors come into their own. Because if you have some if you have some confidence that you can measure the value of something, um, then um, uh, then that's what you're buying. I mean, if you're buying you know Unilever or something, you're not. It's not as if you're buying. Um, Something that isn't making money, that isn't actually selling lots of things every day. That is, that has some reality to it. Now, of course, you can't value it precisely, um, and that's what the game of investing is about. In part, it's in part, it's about, it's about deciding whether something is cheap or expensive at the moment you're actually looking at it. That's one aspect of it. Um, but the other aspect of it, which I think again is a point that Terry Smith, for example, makes very well, is that if you're actually buying a company that actually has making very high returns on capital and you believe can sustain that, uh, it doesn't actually make much difference what price you buy it at over the over a period of years. Because it's the return, it's the compounding effect of return on capital that makes that makes you the money. Okay. And the price at which you buy it is is a factor, but it's only a secondary factor over longer periods of time. Just to just to fight a rear guard action on behalf of the gold bugs, I heard a great <laughs> A few years ago, which I'm now gonna now gonna impose on you, which is uh, <laughs> buying gold is not even uh, an investment. It is a conscious decision to refrain from investing until the introduction of an honest monetary system makes a calculation of relative asset prices possible. If I had a microphone, I would drop it at this point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just a vision of Sam like just chucking the mic down. Just. <laughs> Yeah, well, you've uh, you, you've silenced the room with that one. <laughs> respect. <laughs> so, bre- so Brexit. Respect. We, have, we, we haven't had Brexit yet. So the B word. Um, do you think we're going to leave the uh, failing, disgusting, fascist uh, superstate on thirty uh, first of October or not? Uh, you mean the um, the Soviet Union? I don't think we're going to be leaving <laughs> the EU. The EU SSR. Okay. Well, um, the honest answer is I have no idea. I don't think anybody has any idea. Um, well, okay, I, so okay, what would your preference be? Well, my preference be, yeah. Uh, okay, that's a more tricky one. Um, this is not an investment question, right? This is not this really. is a this is a this, this is, is a this, this, trans, this transcends the world of investment and takes us into a plane of pure sovereignty. <laughs> oh, cracky. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Pure sovereignty, I suspect, is a myth. But anyway, let's uh, let's think about it. Um, okay, so if you're asking me, what do I feel about the European Union? Okay, yep. well, and how did I this Brexit thing? But basically, I believe that I am a member of the great silent majority in this country, who actually would want to retain the economic benefits and not the, have the political infrastructure of the EU, which has many disturbing aspects to it. Okay, so, however, the reality of the world is that whatever happens, we are going to have to have some relationship with the EU uh, in future. And it's all about, as far as I'm concerned, it's all about, I'm afraid, about the detail. You know, I don't think this is, I mean, there are grand issues of principle here, um, but uh, I don't think that in the real world that what matters is really 
on what basis our future relationship is with the EU, and we don't know what that's going to be. So basically, uh, there are certain conditions in which I would be very happy to remain part of the EU and certain conditions in which I would not. And I don't know whether we're going to get to the state of that I want to get to, and I don't think anybody knows because it all depends on what happens in the next probably six to 12 months. Is so, your preference? Your question. Is your, yeah, it does. Thank you for that, because that's quite an honest uh, answer. Um, I just want to ask about your 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 writing, Jonathan, if I may. You, given that you've done very well very recently in the stock market and all the experience that you've got, especially with the big names that you've you've studied, have you thought about, or would there be a book for you in the pipeline about not necessarily about them, but about you and your style of investing? Um. Well, probably not. I mean, I have, I have, you know, I have, um, my wife often points this out. I have, <laughs> I, I don't sort of score very well on the kind of, uh, you know, ambition, uh, ego gene, if I can put it that way. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, w- I would, I would be very uncomfortable sort of writing a book saying, you know, I'm a genius and you're not, and this is what you should do. No, but you see, that's precisely why you should write it because you're not writing oh. it from a position of ego. You're writing it from a position of, look, matter of fact this is this is what i've done i mean i didn't necessarily mean because you've done well but actually if you were if you wanted to take a step back at this point because you think the markets have maybe you know they're at a certain mature stage perhaps and and uh, just focus on something else you might find it a cathartic experience just to i guess bring together all your investment wisdom into one tome well you're very kind to suggest that i mean but i would feel also you know uh, on a bound to put in all the things that I haven't done very well. And, uh, you know, that would be um, quite interesting too. I mean, it's very difficult to describe the process. I mean, I'm I'm almost by uh, by accident. You know, I do invest my own money and I also, you know, give some advice to pro- professional firms. So, you know, and I, the thing that strikes me, of course, is I have a lot of admiration for people who, who you know, um, manage money for clients. Um, that's not, a, again, a popular view. Um, a lot of them I don't think are very good, but a lot of them are. I mean, if, if you, it's so difficult to do that uh, in a way where you can actually sleep at night, I think, um, because, you know, you're dealing with people's lives here and everybody has different uh, needs and aspirations. And there's no one sort of set of rules that can govern what you do. You really need to know the person's situation. You really need to know their temperament. You need to know what they can live with. And you need to be able to, you know, reassure them. And I think it's very difficult to generalize, to be honest. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's difficult to generalize about that. And I do admire people who do that job well. I don't admire a lot of firms who do it not very well and charge a lot of money for, you know, doing not a very good job. Um, but that's like any business, you know, you get good ones and bad ones. Um, so I'm kind of wary of generalizing. All I do know is that, um, you know, I spend, I do spend a lot of time on it. I, you know, I spend sort of, I, I don't know, uh, some hours a day, anyway, looking at the markets, mainly with a view to doing nothing as a result of it, which is rather a strange way to spend your time. I'm not sure I could really kind of recommend that to anybody else. But basically, you keep looking for things. You know what you're looking for. You keep looking for things. Uh, and then just once in a blue moon, you get an idea that you actually think is, you know, is, 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 uh, has got real value. Um, you know, one of the things I learned when I was studying the stock market and everything else was, um, you know, it's not, it's not enough just to get a better idea than the guy next door. You've got to get a better idea than a better understanding of something than majority of people who are also looking at it, many of whom have many years of experience. You know, um, in efficient markets is a, is a, is a nonsense as a, as, a, as, a, as a theory, but there's a, there's a grain of truth, a significant grain of truth in it, which is that, you know, you've really got to be um, 
you've really got to be confident what you've 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 done your homework to to come up with a good decision. And so, you know, I'm sitting here and I spend a lot of my time looking at these kind of big picture things now because I, you know, I've, I've got a reasonable amount of money now. I've got a big picture things. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get caught out by the next, you know, severe crisis. But my God, it's difficult. And, you know, I spend a lot of time on that. But most of the time I end up doing nothing. And I say <laughs> a book that, you know, that said writing a book about that and saying, you know, you should spend most of your time, spend several hours a day uh, with with a view to doing nothing as a result would, would might not go down quite as well. It might not be a might not be a great seller, let's put it that way. Well, I, I, I personally would buy it because it's honest, you know, and, and that's absolutely, f- from what I understand, you make most of your money from sitting on your hands. So, um, but you do write for a, you write a blog, don't you, on the independent investor if, if people wanted to get hold of you or, or to, to follow your writing? How often do you write on, on that particular well, blog? The last couple of years, I haven't actually done very much at all. So, in fact, I've hardly done anything at all in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, I may be starting again quite soon, but at the moment I'm not doing any kind of blogging. And I I do have a little private circulation newsletter, but I haven't taken anybody in on that recently, and because I'm waiting to uh, slightly revamp it and start that again. Right. But it's difficult to. I mean, at the moment I don't and I don't write for any publications on a regular basis anymore. Um, so I'm kind of um, I'm currently off the grid, I suppose you could say. <laughs> right. Do you, do, you, do, you use, do you use Twitter, Jonathan? I do occasionally tweet, yeah. But uh, again, I, I mean, I think with, with, with Twitter, you've got to do it regularly, haven't you, to make it really worthwhile. Uh, I mean, I've, I think I've made some incredibly profound comments on Twitter over the last two or three years and a couple of jokes. Uh, but they're very much, you know, that's about it. <laughs> you'd have to be pretty attentive to find out what uh, what I'm saying about things. And uh, because a lot of the time I don't, you know, I don't have a strong view. I mean, that's the trouble. If you if you go on Twitter and you don't have a strong view, you're kind of, you know, um, well, like Charlie Munger, you know, nothing to add. It would be my, I could tweet that most days, you know, nothing to add. Yeah, but so, you, know, you, could, you could easily get a book out of that, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, flesh it out, flesh it out with a few, flesh it out no, with no, a few no, photos. Two hundred pages saying I have nothing to add because yeah. someone had like the, the secret of modern central banking revealed, and every page just says print money. <laughs> that would be that's a brilliant idea, Tim. Actually, you have a sort of whole series of questions, two hundred questions, to which I could answer four. That would be <laughs> and nothing to add on the other one. That would be a very good way. All I'd say though is, yeah, watch this space. I might be coming back into the into the writing world uh, in due course. I do edit this thing called the Investment Trust Handbook. Uh, which I've written uh, uh, quite a lot of that for, which is a lot of it's just about, you know, how to understand investment trusts and a little bit of commentary on what's going on. And I rashly agreed to um, to start a portfolio for that. Uh, but I haven't yet uh, disclosed the results of that. Uh, so that's <laughs> that's something my date with destiny is coming up on that score. Uh, but it's quite fun, actually. I do track um, I do track a couple of portfolios which very faithfully reflect what I'm doing myself. And uh, I'm just embarrassed by the fact they've done, you know, remarkably well. I have to be honest, and I, I'm kind of embarrassed by that fact. I see why you don't really want to to kind of publicise what you're doing. Really, it's it sounds like you're you, you know you're quite a humble guy, and you you would see writing a book as being almost like showing off. But I I assure you that I I think that's precisely why you should write it. I'd be very interested to read a book that you've written. I mean, obviously the books that you've written so far. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be checking them out, but um, I, I think 
I think the real value is understanding your your process. And I think there's far more to that process than you you really realise. And I think once you you come to write it, I think people will find it very very valuable. So please don't throw that idea away. You know, um, hopefully your your wife will convince you to do it. <laughs> well, I will say this: I do have. I just looking around. I'm sort of sitting in my study at the moment. I look around. I mean, I have to my for my eternal discredit. I have read an enormous number of books about investment going back over about 30 years. Uh, and there's, of course, a lot of wisdom in there uh, and a lot of nonsense as well. And um, so I guess, you know, but the thing is, I I don't know about your experience, but I mean, basically, as you get older, you're kind of, you you kind of um, internalize your experience. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's how you get the results you do is because it's, in my case, all inter- I've never written it down. I just sort of do what I've kind of absorbed over the years. And uh, you know, amazingly, it seems to seems to have um, done quite well. So maybe, maybe you know, people should read a lot of books. I think. Well, I, th- I think anyone who's successful in the markets has read a lot of books, and after a while, you, you learn to pick out, you know, the the stuff that that repeats and and amplifies the positives, and the stuff that obviously doesn't, you know, you you discard. But I think also you you will tend to devalue. Um, in your own mind, the knowledge that you've got, because you think, oh yeah, yeah, that's obvious. You know, you know, of course you'd do that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd sit on your hands at this point. Uh, oh yeah, of course you'd look at that indicator. And but to other people, it's like, what really? You're doing that? That's really interesting. Oh, I've never thought of doing that. And so, the more you learn about something, I think the more you just assume that everybody else knows exactly the same. And and actually, that's not the case. You know, most people wouldn't be thinking in that way. So everyone's got a unique kind of perspective on it. And you were saying it before at the, the top of the show that that Warren Buffett taught you that you should trade or invest in a way that's compatible with your own beliefs and your own style. And and that's something I found across all the disciplines of investing, you know, whether, whether it's technical or, you know, value or growth or like Tim's approach is a, a combination of, of, of more than one, which is, you know, that's fascinating as well. So everyone's got a unique perspective and I wouldn't do down the value of that. That's that's like people want to see how other people are doing it, even if it's the more quirky, the more sort of less mainstream, the more I'm interested in it, the more I think it's there's there's more to learn from it. You know, there's no point writing a book that everybody else has written because there's there's no value there. But Right, but don't, don't underestimate the fact that you know, when you when you do things, I mean, I remember reading about Soros, George Soros. One of these things about him is that whenever he made one of his big plays, you know, he got terrible backache, had to go and lie down. That's okay, right. and, and you don't don't know when you know <laughs> things that work out later. You say, well, of course, you know, that was that was that was my experience with Jesus. But at the time, you don't know that. And yeah. I think what's so interesting about you know this whole situation now is that you know after the crisis, everybody was you know, frantically looking around to see. You, what the hell is going to happen next? And of course, nobody got it really right. I don't think people got some aspects of it right. Some other people got other aspects of it right. But if you'd asked me in 2010, you know, um, would I would I expect to do this, you know, this well over this period? The answer, of course, is no. I had absolutely no idea. We were all kind of, you know, testing hypotheses. You know, well, maybe this is going to happen. Maybe that's going to happen. The fact that it has happened this way, though not in the precise way that I expected or anybody else expected. You know, it's a constant reminder. You know, you need to be you need to be humble in this business. You've got to, you know, you you and I think you know, going back to the very beginning, you know, if ever you start believing your own publicity, you are in you're 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 you could be heading for a fall. And we've seen that happen many times with people, um, you know, including recently. 
So I think it's very, I just think it's very difficult. And uh, the, the hardest part of all, in, in my mind, is balancing this kind of uh, big picture stuff with the small picture stuff, you know, because some people are very good at the small picture stuff, but if there's a big bear market, they get carried out. Other people are quite good at the big picture stuff, but they're not very good at, you know, implementing it. Uh, I think it's fascinating, this whole balance between the, you know, the, the long term, the big, the big macro stuff and the little micro, you know, should I buy this or should I buy that stuff? I think that's very fascinating. And I've, you know, I, I quite like the fact you can flip from one to the other and then try and bring it all together. But uh, God, don't ever say it's easy. No, no, no one would ever say that. But what I can assure you is that there will be people out there who would really love to hear your views, even if it's no views. So if we're able to share your Twitter handle, um, that, that would yes. be great. Um, and have and also start doing what you suggest then and start saying, you know, nothing to add every day. That'd nothing be... to add. Yeah, no, please do. <laughs> I'm, sure you, I'm sure you can knock it up with some software. Just do it for you automatically. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I could then probably, yeah, I could, I could yeah, get hire a bot or something and send it all over the world. Yeah, that would be good. So what is your Twitter handle? J D S V I E W. J-D-S-V-I-E-W. Excellent, excellent. Well, if you do come back on the grid in, in terms of your independent investor blog or any other way, please do let us know. Um, it'd be great to have you back on the show as well. So, um, okay. but, it, it, but if there is some step in that direction, it would be great to share it with our listeners. Well, you're very kind. Uh, you've indulged me hugely today. And... Um, I think you're just as you know, just as much value listening to Tim. I should say, can I say that I'm, I have a little bit of money in Tim's fund. Uh, I never yeah, told yeah, the, the checks I'm, in the post, Jonathan. I never told him that, and uh, but oh. and the reason I I do it is not because I you know I know he's a splendid fellow and I like the fact he's an English literature graduate. You know, he knows a little bit about real you know real life, which is what you learn about in fiction. Um, but I do it because actually this whole value growth thing. You know, I have I have. I'm fascinated by that. And um, so I have a little bit of money in Tim's Fund just to see how value is doing. And, uh, you know, that's uh, so it's one way I wish I keep I keep tabs on how value is doing as a discipline. And one day, you know, maybe I'll be 100% into value. But uh, for the moment, not yet. But anyway, keep up the good work, Tim. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, do, we have, uh, do we have time for media picks? Yes. So, Tim, what, what have you got for us this week? Uh, mine is one that we recorded recently off uh, TiVo, but it was I think it was uh, shown on um, BBC uh, in March, and it's a series called uh, White Gold, and it is just the funniest thing you've ever seen. So it's actually the second series. Oh, it's basically yeah. by one of the guys behind the Inbetweeners. It's got two of the actors from the Inbetweeners, but it's basically a, a sort of comedy series, a Certificate 18 Parental Advisory, but uh, it's a it's a comedy series about a bunch of uh, PVC window salesman, and it's it's from the eighties, so it's got an absolutely cracking eighties soundtrack. So anybody that like me is a child of the eighties, it's just like all your Christmas is coming home at once. But it's very funny, very funny, a very engaging, deeply black, which is how I like my my humour these days. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's on iPlayer anymore because the BBC is again is a disgusting institution that should be put to death. But um, you can get it on Netflix. Oh, right. Okay. I'd seen it, but I'd not watched it. So now I'm going to watch it. Thank you, Tim. Um, mine is a documentary, which is currently on the BBC called The Raft. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a Storyville. Fantastic uh, documentary about, in 1973, five men and six women uh, put on this uh, raft that's just drifting across the Atlantic Ocean as part of a scientific experiment. 
and they were trying to see whether uh, they could or how violence and and uh, aggression formed. So they picked these these people a bit like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, um, like an initial version of that to see how they would interact. And it's just thoroughly captivating. I, th- I found it so extraordinary, really. So they they use archive material for the time because it was a really big event at the time. I'd never heard of it until I'd seen this documentary. Um, and they interview the uh, the people who are on the raft afterwards, you know, the, the survivors. And uh, it's just a fascinating insight into the human condition. So I, I found that brilliant. And you can catch that on the BBC on iPlayer at the moment. Um, so it's called The Raft. So that's my one. Um, Jonathan, what have you got for us? Okay, well, if we're sticking to that kind of thing, I mean, the thing I've most enjoyed recently, and you may have, people may have mentioned it to you already, um, but it's still available uh, on Netflix, which is this wonderful thing called Call My Agent. Have you have you heard? Have you seen that? No, no, no I haven't. Agent is absolutely wonderful. If you if you <laughs> if you like, um, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary idea because it actually centers around a um, uh, an agency firm that's working for actors, basically, in a, a, a theatrical agents and and uh, media agent firm, and it's French. And it is full of the French taking the mickey out of themselves. And it's not something you see very often. <laughs> no, it, I was going to say. It's hilarious. And it's a, the other great feature of it is they actually get you know real famous uh, French actors to come on and play their, play themselves in a kind of extreme way while they kind of have this sort of chaotic, mad uh, life as, as agents. Uh, and so they have people like Nathalie Bay and Juliette Binoche and Isabelle Huppert and Jean Dujardin and all these sort of people come on and they basically allow them to take the sort of piss out of themselves. <laughs> it's absolutely Brilliant. hilarious. And and um, there's four series. I think it's they've done the final one now, unfortunately, but you can still get it on uh, on Netflix. And I strongly recommend it if you if you like. I mean, they're, they're all beautiful people, of course, uh, being French, uh, but it's also incredibly funny. And that's something which, uh, in, a, in a kind of, in a, in a, in a, in a charming way, um, you know, not in your face way. So uh, I strongly recommend that. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Absolutely love it. Well, I'll definitely check that out. Just to say, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure having you on. You've been a superb guest and we really do want to hear more from you in the future. So please do stay in contact. Well, you're very kind. And uh, of course, I'd be delighted to do that. Thank you. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, We really do appreciate your support. And uh, thanks, Tim. And we will catch you next time. So take care, everyone, and see you soon. Bye-bye. Really okay. great. Great well, stuff. Thank you. Well, um, next time I shall have um, nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That's and on excellent. that bombshell. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay, thanks, thanks, Jonathan. Take okay, care. bye. Bye. All the best. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.